Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. We've been going through a series on Romans, and we've been building up towards this point where on soon we're going to get, in my opinion, we're going to be able to get to the end of chapter 8, and chapter eight's a great place to pause our series on Romans. It's, many people say, one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. I, I personally uh, would say it's probably my favorite, uh, my favorite New Testament letter for sure and, and my favorite uh, chapter of Romans. We concluded last week's message where all of chapter 7, Paul is really talking about the law. And he's really getting into the details about the law probably because so many of the people in Rome, the church in Rome, are really curious about, well, Paul, if, you, if you're telling me that, you know, Jesus came and, and because of him, we get to have eternal life, whether or not we're good at living the law or not, then what was the point of God sending his law? And Paul really goes into great detail about that. And, and we talked last week about how law, the law wasn't the problem, but it was that sin came and it hijacked this good thing that God had in store for us, God's good law, and it, and it hurt us and it, it led us to have all sorts of problems. And now we're going to see in Romans 8 what we're about to read. Romans 8, the beginning, is a great conclusion to all this conversation about the law from chapter 7, and it's a great launching point to the end of chapter 8. So if you would, turn in your Bibles or your scripture journals to Romans chapter 8. We'll be starting in verse 1 and read 1 through 4, and we'll sit here for a little while. <clears throat> I want to warn you, uh, all week I, I, had, I, probably, could have, I could have, probably could have preached 10 sermons on just verses 1 through 17, so I had to pick what things I was going to emphasize. So I'd encourage you, if there's anything that you wish I'd emphasized, stay a member here for 10 years and I'll do Romans again in 10 years and I'll preach those other ones, okay? <clears throat> Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay, so let's talk about this for a little while. Notice all this language. He's saying the word law over and over and over again. And it's because he's still, like I said, he's wrapping up this section on the law. Some people would tell you that this, these four verses right here are as synced of a gospel message as you might ever get from Paul, of what the cross meant in Jesus Christ. And I want to I point out to you this part where it says, he set the law of spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. That phrase right there where he's saying the law of sin and death, he's not talking about the Torah being death. He's saying the law, the Torah, when you had it, it still never led to you to have eternal life. It, you still had death and sin in there. He's not calling the law sinful and deathly. And then he says, for what the law was powerless to do, God did. And here Paul does this amazing, like it's a paradox that he's doing, this incredible thing. He's saying all along, from the beginning, the Spirit has been at work to do what the law wanted to do, which is to bring life to people. And the Holy Spirit in the present gives you that life and someday an eternal life in resurrection. And you get to have a taste of that eternal life right now. The law, it's, it's, it's looking on at what God is doing 
knowing that it couldn't have done it by itself. The law knows it was powerless to be able to accomplish new life for people. And it's celebrating the fact that God, who promised this life, has now fulfilled it through this, what he calls the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so a lot of what you're going to see, the title of this sermon today, is called The Work of the Spirit. And there's a lot more going on, but you're going to see over and over a few things that Paul is really emphasizing because of the Messiah, because of Jesus Christ, and because you've decided to have a relationship with him, a big part of that, an enormous part of that, is that you receive the Holy Spirit. And here throughout 8, you're going to see different ways it says, this is what comes when you get the Holy Spirit in your life. So one of the things I want to point out, though, before I keep reading, is the fact that Paul is still using some language that we, we learned in Romans 5. Do you remember when Romans 5, when he talked about how this, the actions of one man, Adam, led to sin and death, and how the actions of one man, Jesus, has led to new life and peace? And his point is, is that Adam is the representative for your old life. He was the one where, because of his choice, we all are in this dilemma. And I talked about how in this culture, everything is so communal. It'd be like if the dad made a choice, the whole family made a choice. Whereas today in the West, we're more individualistic. If my dad decided to become a Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan, I don't have to change. But back then, you know, what the dad decided, everybody decided. This is what you're supposed to see. Because of Adam's decision, it was decided for everyone. Now, because of Christ as our representative, because of his action, it represents all of us also. His gift, his grace, his forgiveness. So when you see this language, and we're going to see more language, this language of the law of sin and death and the law of the Spirit, just keep in your mind, you've got the Adam humanity and the Jesus humanity that we're now a part of. So the first major thing you need to write down if you're a note taker, first heading, is that Paul introduces us to what the Son and the Spirit have done at the cross. He says, and I love how he says it, he says, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, in verse 3, God did by sending his own Son. Remember, I used this joke already. This is great Trinity language. If you're curious about the whole Father, Son, Holy Spirit, here's a great taste of it. Because if, if Sam Wells, if I asked him to help me out, and he said, oh, sure, I'll help. I'll send over Terry. You know, that's not, that doesn't really, really work. Remember, we, I used that analogy already. God said, God did by sending Christ. And so you're able to see that they are one. God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh. It doesn't say He condemned Jesus. He says He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. And so when Paul says there is no condemnation, you don't have to worry anymore this language of this legal idea of the law. Because of the law, you're condemned. Because of sin, you're condemned. He's saying there is no condemnation anymore because of what the Son did on the cross. That you are now completely, I'm going to use the word, officially made right with God. Then he goes on to say, in the next part, he says, and that the righteous requirement of the law, like the actual point of it, the, the life that's supposed to come from the law, might be fully met in us. And how does that happen? Paul is saying, Hey, the, what the law had intended all along for you to have life, it's going to still happen, but it's going to happen not because of your willpower, because of your good moral life. It's going to happen because you now have the Spirit. The Spirit, the Son comes and officially makes you right, and the Spirit comes and helps you actually become someone who lives righteously and holy and a Spirit-filled life. The analogy that I think would be really helpful for this is in 1864, 
1863, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And at that point, every slave in the United States was officially, legally free. But we know that it was a long time before many slaves in the South ever found out that they were free. Until eventually, some soldiers and troops came through and were like, you know, you guys are not slaves anymore. You know, you're good now. It, I, I don't even know what the year was, but it's a, it was a long time before that happened. And the illustration I want to say is like, Jesus is like the Emancipation Proclamation. When he died on the cross and you chose to have a relationship with him, you are made right. You are free. But the Spirit comes is like the soldiers that came later. And the soldiers who came through and said, hey, just so you know, you actually don't have to live in slavery anymore. You can actually start living into this. You can start becoming someone who lives as a free person. And the Holy Spirit's the one that comes and equips us to say, hey, you can actually start living out, as Paul would call it, the righteous requirement of the law in your life. And your life will flow through that. Okay. Don't forget in all of this that when I say that God did this and Jesus did this and the Spirit comes and equips, I'm all talking about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all in one, doing all the work. We just use these different names to help us articulate things. So let's keep reading Romans 8. We'll read 5 through 11. <clears throat> Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. So whenever Paul uses this word flesh, we've got to be real careful because we sometimes do this thing where anything that's physical or bodily we think is bad because we've got this word, the flesh. Anything that has to do with the body, that must be bad. Anything that has to do with the spirit must be good. Paul really will combat that in books like Galatians when you've got all sorts of, in 1 Corinthians. Because back then in this time period, that was all the rage. Oh, you've got the good, good spiritual life and the bad physical body. And you're probably wondering, you're like, well, this word flesh sounds like the body is bad. But we know that can't be the case because why on earth would God, Jesus, come back in a bodily resurrection if the body was bad, right? That makes no sense. And by the way, that's why people say in 1 Corinthians, I don't really buy this whole resurrection thing. Why would God want to come back into this body? You know, blech. But we know that what we believe is that the body, when God made Adam and Eve in a body, God said it was good. So there's nothing wrong with our bodies. But when he uses this word, the flesh, every time you see the word flesh, think of the Adam humanity. Like I was talking about, you've got Adam humanity and spirit Jesus humanity. And when you think of the flesh, the, the way I like to think about it is anything that will, anything that is part of the old way of how things used to be. And anytime you hear the word spirit, think of the new age to come that Christ is heralding in. Okay, I'm going to keep reading. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Christ from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. The main thing 
we could talk for a long time about this, but the thing I want to focus on is this phrase, this idea of the, our minds set on what the Spirit desires. Paul makes it very clear, and, and I'll, I'll use an illustration, but Paul makes it very clear that in his opinion, what we think about and what we do are very integrated together. I'll use a little analogy. I don't know if this applies to any of you ladies out here, but if I hear Catherine say to me, just casually, you know, in passing, you know, I've been thinking about getting a haircut. I can start a timer on my watch, and you give it 72 hours, she's going to have a haircut. She can say it as casually as she wants. Like, you know, we'll see, I might get a haircut sometime soon. Uh-uh. It is now in her mind. She's really thinking about it. And I, I better be watching, because I, I need to be prepared to come home and go, hey, you cut your hair. I, not, not one of those things where it's like, well, we went all day and you didn't notice that I cut my hair, okay? Uh, any of you ladies like that where the second you kind of get an idea to get your hair cut, it's like, oh, that's happening soon? Okay, well, let me, give you, let me give you another idea. How many of you have a little, you're sitting around and you have a little home project that you notice? You know, you know our mailbox probably could use some, you know, a little pick-me-up. You know, it's kind of looking a little... And then all of a sudden it's in your brain and you're looking every time you drive by that mailbox. Man, every time you see that paint in your uh, bathroom, you're like, ah, I don't know why we picked that paint a long time ago. We got to change that. Once it's on your mind, eventually it's going to become something you got to do. Here's, here's an analogy for me. When I first moved here, I really wanted to be someone who at least knew how to fish and knew how to hunt and didn't look like a complete idiot when I was doing it, okay? And thankfully, Joe Bates came to the rescue and saved me a lot and showed me a lot of things because I was pretty incompetent doing those things, okay? But I remember at one point, I, you know, I went out, caught a few bass with Joe. I'm watching YouTube videos about bass fishing. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm watching all these different things, looking up all these things, going to Cabela's, spending way too much money on these little things. And I remember I even got to the point where I was looking up how cheaply I could buy like a John boat and buy a little motor and a little, praise the Lord, I didn't go through with that. Only because that was a phase where my mind was on that. Now, I really hope that as I get older, I have more time to go fishing. I hope I have more time to enjoy that. But thank goodness I didn't spend $3,000 on something just because my mind was focused on it. Does that make sense? Before you know it, it's, I wonder what the best kind of fishing rod is. Give it three hours of being on the internet and you just bought three $200 fishing rods. You know what I mean? Like it's not hard to, to get there. And so what Paul is saying, in my opinion, is he's saying that victory over sin and be claiming this identity of being now people of Jesus, people of the Spirit, it begins in our daily lives by setting our minds on that life, on the life of the kingdom, on the life of the Spirit, on the life that brings blessing and gives life. And so the question that, I mean, and, and in Paul, in, in Colossians 3, he says, Starting in 3 1, he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your minds, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I just want you to think about for your daily lives, if you could find a correlation between what takes up the most space in your mind on everyday life, how much do you think would Jesus would be a part of that? If you're anything like me, it's not a whole lot. 
A whole lot of it is paying bills. A whole lot of it is trying to make sure I'm ready for this next class or this next meeting or making sure I'm doing what I can. And those things aren't bad. I'm just telling you that it's really hard. And the Spirit, thankfully, is working in us. But the day is never really going to come where we're constantly making our life about the Spirit and about God, about living out the way Christ would want us to, until our minds start to desire that more and more. When I hear people say, hey, Drew, can we have a bake sale for the Minnesota mission trip coming up? You know where that started? That started with somebody thinking, I really want to go on a mission trip. That started with someone saying, I love when I go and do things in the name of Christ. That started with someone focusing their mind on doing things in the name of Christ. That never got there without it being on your mind and chewing on your heart. Haiti mission trips, everything that we do, Neighborhood Clifton, it started with someone's mind being focused on what the Spirit desires. Okay, let's keep reading. Romans 8, 12 through 17. <clears throat> Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. Now we're going to see Paul is about to get a little sidetracked. He's about to say, we have an obligation to, and then he forgets to finish what he's going to say. He kind of goes off track. And I'll, I'll tell you what I think he's about to say. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. Some translations say a debt. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. We don't have a debt or an obligation to that old life. For if you live according to that old life, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. This word, put to death, if it sounds a little extreme, it's because Paul means for it to be very extreme. You kill it. You don't give it any quarter. You have war against it. Don't give it any room in your life. Get it out of there. You know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, if you're trying to quit an addiction, I don't know what the rules are with quitting addiction, but what Paul would maybe just say, don't give it any room to breathe. Quench that fire. Get it out of there. Put it to death. Okay, let me keep, keep reading. <clears throat> For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His suffering, in order that we may also share in His glory. This phrase, when it says, if you are led by the Spirit, in verse 14, this phrase I think we often use, and we, may, we think it means, I want to be someone who's led by the Spirit. We often think it means, like, I want God to help me make a decision about whether I should date this person or not. Or I need the Spirit to help me whether I should take this job or not. Whether I should pursue this career option, which would mean our family would have to move. Those aren't bad things. That's not what Paul's talking about here, when it means to be led by the Spirit. He's spent this entire time talking about how if you live according to the flesh, and if you live according to the Spirit, so for him, being led by the Spirit is more about living a life that shows that you are triumphing over sin every day. Being led by the Spirit means that we no longer live that life, that we died to that old way of life. Being led by the Spirit means hating the things that the Spirit hates and loving the things that the Spirit loves. Okay, so now we'll get to the grand finale. The thing that I think, if I could only say one thing from this sermon, the thing that is the most profound and the thing that nothing I can say will ever do justice to how impactful this is, is that Paul says that one of the things the Spirit does in your life when you choose to follow Christ is that you are now an adopted son of God. Okay? 
Now, some of you may be sitting there saying, wait a second, you mean adopted son or daughter of God? Well, in this particular case, Paul actually wants you to clearly know he's talking about an adopted son. And I'll explain why. You ready? It's important that I, I didn't put an adopted child. I put an adopted son, and I'll explain why in a second. If you want to understand what a Christian is, you need to grasp this idea that Paul is trying to say of your adoption. And in order for us to grasp what he's talking about, we have to know what adoption meant back then to the people back then. Today, adoption looks in different ways, but for the most part, it looks very similar. But back then, in the Roman society, when a child was adopted, it usually was because a wealthy person was about to die without an heir. A wealthy person would have acquired all this stuff, all these wonderful things, and would have no one to give it to. And so what they would do is they'd pick someone that they really liked. They'd pick a child, maybe their friend's child, or they'd pick a friend. It could be anybody, someone they really, really wanted to be called their child, and they would choose to adopt them. And whenever they did that, these things happened, four things happened. All of the old debts and legal obligations of that child were paid for by their new father. If that child they picked had a debt legally or anything they owed, gone. The father paid for it. Whenever that person was adopted, they immediately had a new name. Their name was that they were their father's son or their father's daughter. It was usually a male heir that they would pick. Also, the new father would then immediately become liable for any of the problems that that, that new adopted child had. If that child had any outstanding problems, it was now on the father to make sure that those were okay. And lastly, and this is where we'll come, this is kind of what I think Paul was getting at, is when you became adopted, you now had an obligation to the new father to honor and live for that new father. Okay? So whenever Paul started this section and says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, I think the place he was trying to get to is we have an obligation as children of God to live to honor our father and bless our father. And so here are the things that I think are so important. In Rome, sonship was a privileged status that was given to the firstborn male heir. And so when Paul is saying, you are now sons, he's not trying to do any kind of gender statement. What he's trying to do is he's trying to say, no matter what your gender is, you now have the privileges and status of the firstborn male heir of the family. This is a big deal. This is very important. You'd have some sons that were younger sons that knew, well, I'm not getting any of this, just the firstborn. Not now that you're in Christ. Now you get the status of the firstborn son. You have some daughters that are like, I'm never going to get any of this because I'm a girl. For Paul, a second the Spirit comes into your life, the Spirit tells you, you now have the standing of a firstborn son. And who do we know is the firstborn son of God? Jesus Christ. So whenever it says that you are now heirs and co-heirs with Christ, he means all the good things that Jesus is getting because of your faith in Him and His righteousness, you now have the same exact status as Jesus Christ in the eyes of God. Remember whenever I told you before that this righteousness statement, we used to always say it's about, I used to be bad and now God has made me righteous. That's, that's a shallow way of looking at it. Righteousness means I used to be bad and now God has given me the Congressional Medal of Honor and the same status as someone who deserves that, Jesus Christ, okay? It's an enormous, enormous thing. So here's how I kind of want to make sure I, I say this before I finish. Paul sets out, and he's going to keep this going. I'll have to mention these the next time I preach about Romans. But there are four things that are worth pointing out that he mentions 
of what the Spirit does for you as a new adopted child of God. Now I'm going to start saying child instead of son. Now that I've made that point, okay? Here are the four things if you're a note taker. First, you have security. It says, the Spirit you received, you do not live in fear again. You have complete security knowing you don't have to be afraid of condemnation anymore. Another thing that it gives you is authority. Back then, if you were a son, you would have something called a... Anybody want to guess or no? You'd have a signet ring. Anywhere you went, you showed that ring off. It's like an Aggie ring for Aggies, you know? Like, yep, I'm in the Aggie network. You got it? This is the same thing, but even greater for that family. If your family, you had that signet ring, anything that you did was like, I'm speaking on authority of this family. Paul says you're not a slave anymore who doesn't have any authority to... No, the Spirit gives you authority that you are now a part of God's family. It also gives you intimacy. This one's probably my favorite of the four. Whenever it says the phrase, we now get to cry out, Abba, Father, that word Abba is an Aramaic word for daddy. I know you may think that sounds silly or childish, but the word in Hebrew and Aramaic for, God, for father is Ab. So Abba is like someone saying dada, daddy. That's what he's trying to say. This God of the universe who created everything, who we often treat as, and we look at in different ways. He's trying to say, because the Spirit's in your life, you get to approach Him in the same way a young little child gets to cry out to their dad after they fell off their bike on the driveway and they skinned their knee. You know, I hope if you're in a healthy father-son relationship, my hope is, yeah, I'm probably going to give him a big hug, probably going to hold him, and I'm probably going to say, now, you're okay, right? You know, we're going to be tough. You know, I'm going to do a little of that, but I'm going to hold him, you know? And I want them to come to me. I'm not going to be like, get up, get out of here, ugh. I'm not going to say that when Landry Joe skins her knee. I'm going to say, come here. And she's going to cry. You know, she's going to be crying. And this is what he's, the image that he's trying to say to you. The Spirit gives you this. Without the Holy Spirit, we do not feel like we can go to God with this kind of intimacy. And then lastly, it gives us assurance that when we cry out to God, this is the words he uses. He says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. If you ever feel for a second, I don't know if I'm a child of God. I don't know if I'm an heir of God. Part of what the Spirit does is it gives you assurance. It testifies on your behalf that says, yes, it is an inner witness that in a sense that God really loves us and that we can be sure that we are God's children because the Spirit testifies for us. So this is where we'll end, talking about this new obligation we have. That because of the Spirit, and because of our adoption, we now have an obligation as children of God. God's gift and His call to us is not for ourselves alone, but for the purpose of working through us to bring about a transformation of us and the whole world. That's what God had intended all along. Paul declares that we have this new obligation. We have to live in a new way, a way that looks backward at the story of love and mercy of the cross and forward, anticipating the kingdom which Christ has already initiated. To be children, to be heirs, means to live as a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth with Christ as our King. And thanks be to God, His Spirit of life is going to help us do it every day. If any of you would like to learn more about what it means to be a part of this new life of the Spirit, of what it means to be a child and to have those things, to have security, authority, intimacy, assurance, I'd encourage you to come talk with us either now or during the week. And if you have any prayer requests, I'd encourage you to go to the, the elders will be standing at the doors while we stand and sing this song.